from you who would you like to hear as a guest on the podcast send me an email at matt at wisefoolpod.com or direct message me on instagram or facebook the entire world is now available through virtual recordings and i want to take advantage of that i want to talk to people in south america asia and africa give me some names and contacts of professional people that work in different aspects and different elements of the art world You can also help by supporting our network through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the conversations and the insights that you gain from the guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know that one of my weaknesses is my inability at self-promotion. So here we go. If after hearing this conversation, you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S.com. Thanks. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Tamar Avishai. And where are you from? I'm originally from Boston. I just moved to Shaker Heights, Ohio, a beautiful suburb of Cleveland, as made famous by uh, Reese Witherspoon lately. The little fires everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my neighborhood now. So Okay. I actually taught at Bowling Green State University, so I know Cleveland pretty well. Nice. A lot of people do. Like a lot of people, when you actually ask them, it seems like Cleveland is is like, I don't know, on people's radars in a way that it was never for me growing up. It, yeah, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I never thought of Ohio at all, much less Cleveland, really. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me neither until I met my husband. Well, my favorite place, though, in Cleveland is the, the Morgan Conservatory. Have you seen Where this place? Where is that? It's in down. It's not downtown. It's in a sort of a warehouse district, and they're a, a paper making and print making facility. Uh, and they they literally like do handmade papers, and they do workshops, and they also mm-hmm. do letter press and screen printing and book binding and all kinds of beautiful stuff like that. Fabulous. Yeah. Okay, I'll check it out. They even grow their own mulberry trees to <laughs> to make mulberry paper. Oh, who doesn't? I mean, come yeah. on, as one does, right? As one does. Yes. Okay, so now you uh, have quite a little pedigree. I was looking through your CV of all your different uh, places that mm. you've taught and you've had fellowships. and you I mean, you look fabulous you know, on paper. All you have to do is just put the word fellowship and, you know, quote unquote, in residence. And I'm that's horribly all it impressed. Takes. Yes, I mean, <laughs> totally impressed. I mean, one of them, I believe, was even Harvard, I believe. Yeah. So, okay. I'll tell you really quickly about the Harvard thing. I finished my master's at Tufts, which is, you know, right around the corner in Harvard's backyard. And there was a professor who was teaching like a gen ed art and art history course at Harvard. And he needed more TAs, basically. Of course, they call them TFs at Harvard. So it goes from being, you know, just a normal teaching assistant to a teaching fellow. That's the Harvard thing. It's the exact same thing. 
And so he didn't have enough graduate students to teach because they don't want to teach. And he was looking for people at other universities. And so an old professor of mine said, well, here's this person who doesn't have a job (laughs) in the field yet. So here. And so I ended up being a teaching fellow there for five years. But, you know, it just it's not, you know, it was fun to say that I taught at Harvard, but I wouldn't necessarily there are plenty of Harvard graduate students who would disagree with that assessment. Fair enough. I totally understand. Okay. Yeah. So now you run a, a very infamous podcast. People <gasps> listen to it. It's on the top of all the lists of like, you know, arts podcasts everywhere. So tell, tell me a little bit about how that podcast came to be, because my assumption is because from what I read about you is that you were already sort of doing these little 15 minute, you know, one hour walkthroughs in the Boston Museum. And then it just sort of said, hey, translate, let's translate that for the wider audience and make it into mm-hmm. a podcast. Am I right? Sort of. Darn it. So it's a little bit more circuitous than that. You're mostly right. It was more that I actually, like it all started that I actually really wanted to be a radio producer. And I fell in love with audio right before the wave of everybody kind of falling in love with audio. And I don't mean that I'm ahead of the curve. I just had friends who were, who worked in public radio and it just seemed like my people. And I was at a real professional crossroads at the time anyway. I wasn't Like, I didn't want to be an art history professor. I didn't really want to be an art historian, but it felt like doing a PhD was kind of the only way to get taken seriously in the, in the industry, (laughs) industry, you know, in the, in the field, but I didn't really want one. It just wasn't, it wasn't really where my passion lay just because it was where all my experience had been. Like I just, I wasn't a researcher, I was a teacher. And unfortunately, you can't really do the academic, like you can't play the academic game and say, I just want to be a professor. You have to be a writer, you have to be a, you know, you have to publish or perish. And yeah, like I I really didn't know where I wanted to go in that direction, like in, in the art history world. And Then I started hanging out with these radio producers just through friends. And it was like, people were asking these probing, insightful questions. And they were so descriptive in the way they talked to you. And they were so earnest in the way that they were interested in you. And and it made me kind of recalibrate like what I loved about art history in the first place was really kind of trying to understand somebody in their larger context. And it was like art was just that point of entry, but it wasn't everything. You know, it's like I I didn't want to get hung up on what was going on inside the frame when to me the entire painting was a really natural byproduct of everything that was happening outside the frame. And that was really, really fascinating to me. And it felt like all of that could be summed up in storytelling you know, narrative storytelling. And it was like, bing, like, you know, this is the kind of radio that I'm really interested in. So I wanted to get into that world and I didn't have any real way of getting in there. And I actually had a radio friend say, hey, you know, there's no, like podcasting is kind of this thing now. I don't know of any art history podcasts. Maybe that's something that you could kind of 
you know, you don't know how to podcast, but you know art history. So maybe you can bring that into the, you know, into that new indefined landscape. Well, having a passion for your topic is the probably the most important thing when you try to get into something like a new medium like podcasting at that time. Yeah, I I had kind of lost my passion for it for a while. And so it was actually really nice to get it back because I didn't have to write about it in a really academic way. I could write about it the way that I would anecdotally teach my students. You know, it's like, yeah, I know it seems like this this reading by Baudrillard is really, you know, hard to parse, but just think about it like this. Have you ever seen Clueless? You know, da-da-da-da-da, like that kind of thing. Sure. And it was like, you know what, this is actually how people respond to this stuff. And it's it's so inaccessible kind of by design and this is something people, I want to talk to you about. Yes. Is yeah. that, I mean, what you seem to do in your podcast is you try to take the inaccessible, the ivory tower, the elitist thing, and try to make it somehow more approachable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What? <laughs> There's no question. Should give there. me a question. It was, you know, it's just, <laughs> agreeing with me is fine. That's good. So, the but... One of the questions I have about it, because like I've looked, I've looked through some, I've listened to the other, some others, is like I, I keep wondering why you choose the particular pieces you choose, because like I know some of those artists reasonably well, and I know some of their other works reasonably well, and I'm like, that's not the work I would probably choose to talk about. Yeah, so it's because it's what's at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. It's true. I um, knew that was going mostly. to be the answer. Yeah. But it's actually, I, I appreciate that because the as much as I would say, okay, if you're going to talk about Degas, you know, yeah, let's talk, let's do a dancer or something that people recognize as a quintessential Degas. And then it turns out that the best Degas that they happen to have at the museum is one that people would walk right by, but there's real meat and you know, juicy stuff to unpack in just that painting. And so it's a challenge every time to take a painting that might be a lesser known painting by a very famous artist and still make you care and help you understand why that painting actually fits in really beautifully to the artist's whole body of work and, and how, you know, it's like I had professors in, in college who, would show you a painting and it wouldn't be the famous version. You know, it wouldn't be the one that you would recognize, but you would have to, as part of the exam, see how it's still really like emblematic of that artist. And I don't know, maybe that's like a little added thing. Like, you know, in a perfect world, I have all of MoMA's collection, you know, in the Art Institute and, you know, at my fingertips, but I also actually really appreciate, like, it, it makes me understand why and how the curators at the MFA, for example, make their decisions to acquire this or that painting that's not necessarily like the painting, but a really valuable painting nonetheless. Now, do, do you have any insider knowledge on like the process of acquiring a piece? Zero. Okay, because I was like, I want to know that. How do you, how <laughs> is that decision made? Yeah. No, I've. I mean, you know, whatever kind of comes up as it comes up, and I know that there are there are you know curators whose whole jobs are just to maintain relationships with potential benefactors, and 
there's no reason why any one painting should be the painting. You know, every artist. It is an interesting is, point. It's sort of that. That's the thing is like, so in the art world, like there are the known pieces, the pieces that sort of are emblematic or iconic of a particular artist or time mm-hmm. period or whatever. And I always wonder, like sitting back, looking through art history books and looking through whatever, you know, even monographs of, of individual artists. And I'm always like, why is the that one, how did that one become the iconic image for that person? Yeah. Yeah. And I can never find the answer to that. <laughs> I don't think there is an answer. I think it's just, you know, why does any celebrity go viral? You know, why does anything just, why do people just kind of fasten their hearts and minds on this like one thing? I don't know. That's why I'm literally asking you that I was hoping <laughs> you had an answer, but you don't. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> so, Change of topic. So um, you said that you were teaching for a while and that you had thought about going down the academic avenue. Now, I'm also a professor, and Mm -hmm. I admittedly am a bit disillusioned with the academic industry right now, Mm -hmm. and I was wondering what your position on that is. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, I'm really out of it. So I... I don't know a single professor who isn't disillusioned with it. And if they aren't, they're lying, you know, either to the world or to themselves. Yeah. Especially now. I mean, I I come from an academic family and I think that it's, it's just changed so much in the last 50 years that it's, it's not really, it's comparing apples and oranges. I mean, if you're trying to get in now, it's, there are just too many people and too many people, not enough full, even full-time jobs, much less tenure track jobs. I mean, they're, they're all transitioning to online teaching or part-time adjuncts and they're not, it's not no longer the security and the safety that, you know, teaching used to be that, that ability to just say, I'm going to be here and I will be here the rest of my life. And there you go. It's not. Well, and there's, there's the logistical piece to it. The, the, almost, you know, the barbaric lack of jobs and lack of pay and treatment of postdocs and not, you know, I mean, and and junior professors. But even beyond that, I think that it's just a different, like, I think that the people who go into academia don't all go in with like the purest of intellectual intentions. I think that it's kind of like law school, you know, it's like, I'll go because I can't think of anything else to do. I almost did that, which is why I'm, I'm really sensitive to it. I mean, I, I shouldn't have gotten a PhD. And I'm glad that the decision was kind of made for me. After the global financial crisis, when it was like, I was at a crossroads, and I, (laughs) I could either go into a PhD program, or I got an administrator job at a finance firm. And that was actually the much better path to go down. It would, you know, that kind of security, like it wasn't work that I was particularly invested in, but I could do it well and then poke my head up and look around and say, okay, where is my energy? You know, where do I really want to put my energy? And also I have a paycheck that can help me, you know, that just smooths everything over. It's very important. And I guess that that kind of runs into the logistical piece of it, but it's like, you have to really want to pursue the academic world and the the written word and research 
into that kind of intense degree. I mean, just not everybody has it and not everybody wants it. And trying to force it is brutal. What I want is I I want the security of the full-time job the enjoyment of the classroom, love the classroom itself, the teaching process, with none of the administrative paperwork or meetings. <laughs> and and I would be golden. So you want a unicorn job. Correct. Yes. <laughs> but doesn't yeah. everybody? I mean, that's what yes. you know, we want the freedom and the security simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I just I just gave up the security for the freedom. So I I was in that job for 10 years and I finally left. Well, I, I went out on maternity leave last July and then when that was up. Thank you. <laughs> Ish, I think asked thank you, you, thank you. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. No, he's yeah. <laughs> You're never gonna ask a new mom if she doesn't love her baby. Oh my god. He's the greatest. Okay, great. Um and healthy, I take it, yes. Healthy, Good. thriving, adorable. Lovely. But yeah, so then I came back from my mat leave and I realized that I just, I couldn't be in a job anymore that I didn't have my heart in because it, which I I know is a pretty privileged thing to say, but it was just like having been in that job for a really long time and kind of just doing it because it's what I had done for so long. It was like I suddenly had something that I wanted to be at home with and to be away from that, to be kind of bored, it just didn't make sense anymore. So I was like, all right, well, maybe this is the time to really focus on the Lonely Palette and and push that out into the world in a really meaningful way and be able to do that from home. And but now, uh, but now and I you're quit not. Quit the golden handcuffs. <laughs> I was going to say, but now you're also not as close to the museum anymore either, right? No, no. Well, so are you going to branch out to other museums then? Because there's some, there's great art museums in Cleveland. Yeah, and I actually already had. There are a bunch of episodes from you know whenever I would go visit friends and family or if I went to a wedding somewhere, I would always bring my gear and go to the museum in that city and find a painting there that would make for a good episode and and get some good tape. You know, even though I'm, you know, up until the age of Corona, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to just hop back to Boston whenever I needed to, because I still have a lot of professional work there. I still I, I have a podcast company that we're getting off the ground that is based in Boston. And the Do goal tell. Was just what, to... What's this all about? Come on. <laughs> it's called Hub and Spoke, and it's uh, it started out just as a collective of a couple different podcasts, and we knew that we connected with each other. We knew that we had subject matter that that our audiences, like we could share audiences, basically. So it's like a ninety nine pi kind of thing. Exactly. Well, we we took Radiotopia's model, and we're we're pretty far behind them in terms Everybody of like infrastructure well of course but it but actually um radiotopia is our model because we want to have a collective of independently owned podcasts that share audiences fundraising some basic infrastructure an incorporation that you know allows us to take people's money but still be be independent shows who else is with you on that? 
we have a great roster. I feel like I'm I'm in advertising. Promote mode, away. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, it was started with uh, a show called, so it was myself, a show called Soonish by a tech journalist, MIT tech journalist, Wade Rausch, and uh, a show called Ministry of Ideas, which uh, is run out of Harvard, the Harvard Divinity School. And that is hosted by Zach Davis, who has just launched another project called Lyceum, which is looking at educational podcasts and bringing them together. And so we're all like the three of us started and and Ministry of Ideas was also is also produced by a fellow by the name of Nick Anderson, who's really big in the Boston public radio scene. So the four of us kind of came together originally and said, let's make something here you know, let's get a website, let's get some swag, you know, like, let's decide that this is a thing. Okay, well, this is interesting to me. So like, how does that come about? Like, what, you know, I'm talking like the nuts and bolts, the business of it, like how I did not know you did this. So this is fascinating. So if a group of like minded people want to come together and create something like this, what was the way that the model that you ended up using? How did you technically do all this? Well, I mean, that's just it. Like we, we literally hired a lawyer. Branded. Not even. No, we haven't even done that yet properly. I've incorporated myself, but we're. It's a work in progress. I mean, we didn't like. We don't have to be incorporated to still say that we are a collective. That's why you know we've only just started using the word company in order to aspirationally explain what we are going to become to advertisers and sponsors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and we we want to incorporate it as a nonprofit. Oh, okay, um, great. When the time comes. So but that's a that's a, a much more complicated. I mean, we were, everything yes, was was going down the road until until we all ended up sequestered at home. So This is the um, perfect time to be doing out. this work. This is just paperwork. <laughs> it time. is, but we're all just figuring. Anyway, but it started out just saying we wanted to like we wanted to be a community we, it was kind of multi-pronged. We wanted to be a community. We wanted to kind of lean on each other because this is a pretty solo venture. You know, putting out your own podcast, especially when you're just kind of a one-man, one-woman band, you end up, yeah, like, you know, it can be pretty lonely and you don't have an, uh, you know, you don't have an editorial board to help make sure that you're in the right direction. You don't have anybody to tell that voice in your head to shut the... You are welcome to curse on mine, but it's fine. <laughs> shut the fork. And so, shut the fork up. Yep. Exactly. So that was one. We wanted community. Two was we wanted something that would distinguish us from, you know, podcast was just at the beginning. And this was a couple of years ago. So, you know, where it's gone. Podcast became this word that was already starting to tread into like, have you read my blog territory? And we wanted to make it really clear that being an independent podcast didn't mean that it was just, you know, we were just some like bozos in our basement, like, you know, that we really were putting an enormous amount of energy into our production values and into our writing and that we took our cues from shows like Radiotopia to, you know, shows that would appear on Radiotopia and Gimlet and, you know, just NPR in general, that we were children of that world. You know, so if we ever ended up 
on a list, you know, we wanted to have a production company, you know, or something under our names that made it clear that we were, you know, legit. And then from there, we, we, you know, it was like someday we'll try to use this to make money. But in the meantime, you know, this is what our collective looks like. And we've really grown pretty steadily over the last few years. I was going to say, um, so, so when did this sort of get incorporated or, or sort of st- the structure of it start? Only in the last few months is the actual incorporation structure. Up until that point, we literally, like, we got a website and we got, we paid for some professional branding and I got some pins <laughs> and Wade got some stickers and we just talked about it. We talked about ourselves like we were a thing. Mm-hmm. And suddenly people started, not actually suddenly, over, it was a slow burn, where people started saying that a hub and spoke show has a certain sound to it. And that was really exciting to us. And so we started taking on some more shows. We, in the past year, we've landed open source with Christopher Lydon. I mean, considered like the first podcast, which is really cool from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. God, what are some other shows? Uh, Rumble Strip, The Constant. Like we've just taken on shows that are incredibly high quality that we're just looking for a home. And from there, we're going to really, you know, we're going to, we, like now that we have that, now that we have our little homeless collective, we're going to build the house. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you know, Roman Mars has taken it and made it an entire, you know, ecosystem out of his entire yeah. vision. And it's magnificent. I absolutely love it. I mean, you really could probably take it back to the original ideas of NPR itself. Like, I mean, it's basically the same idea, but they've just got, what, 50 years on us. So. Yeah. No, and we had a really, the four of us, uh, Zach, Nick, Wade, and myself, we met with Kerry Hoffman, who is the CEO of PRX, which owns Radiotopia and houses Radiotopia. And we we had a really good conversation with her because that's the other thing. This community is so collaborative and so supportive. And there was never any sense of why should I help you compete with us? First of all, because like... <laughs> we couldn't yeah they're but they're the really, big elephant in the room so yeah, yeah exactly i mean we you know in in that way we're hardly a threat but it was like it was so generous of her to sit down with us and she walked us through our website and helped us you know kind of make everything as clean as possible and helped us think about how we wanted to prioritize and strategize and it was just it was it was wonderful you know she she basically saw a world with more high quality idea driven podcasts and said, sounds great. You know, whatever I can do to help. The Boston radio community is incredibly supportive of each other. It's really beautiful. I miss them. I mean, fortunately in this world we're in right now, I kind of don't have to miss anybody because we're all available on the computer and on our phones. And it's like, it's like for the last couple of months, I only moved here in December and it was hard. I mean, I've spent my whole life in Boston pretty much. And for like, as, as devastating as this all is, the part of my heart that was really homesick has kind of lifted, <laughs> like has, has healed because I feel like everyone is just as available as they ever were. And it's nice to have a reminder of that. They're probably even more available now than ever yeah. because, you know, everybody True. had jobs they had to go to and things they had to do that no longer have to do at this moment. 
Yeah. Are you going to be expanding Lonely Palette in some way in the near future? Now that you've moved away from your your home base museum, or is it going to just continue the same, doing the same thing, and just taking finding new locations to do it in? I think mostly doing the same thing. I think that people find a lot of comfort in podcasts that are predictable mm-hmm. with predictable formats. Agree. Although there is. You know, there are there are plenty of other kind of side projects that I could take on that could be really interesting. I mean, I feel like The Lonely Palette has been a really good springboard into arts writing in general for me. And I am um, like I'm amazed when I you know, when I check my phone in the morning it's like there are opportunities that just you never would have expected. You know, I was raised to believe that like, if you want a job, you apply for it, you go for it. Like you don't have people reaching out to you for different this or that, you know, shrug, maybe this will work collaborative things. But that just feels like where, where podcasting audio journalism is going. Mm -hmm. And it's a really small community too. So I have friends for example, one show that had been in Hub and Spoke, but we use the word graduated. I don't think that's the appropriate word because it makes it sound like we're just a way station to get somewhere bigger. But uh, our friend Barry Lamb, who hosts Hi-Fi Nation, that was picked up by Slate. And, Very nice. Uh, he and I are still buddies. And You can call and, yourself a feeder. So this is, you're a feeder. Well, we want to be the end game. So, Always. Uh, ultimately. But, you know, at the time. You know, Slate came calling and it's not like he he was going to, you know, not answer that shit. Indeed. So, but that does mean that I have a friend who does a philosophy podcast and there's plenty of room there for collaboration and we'll, we'll be in touch and, you know, figure out a way to just, you know, share each other's shows and interests and audience and, you know, end up with some really good, like... At, at the end of the day, everybody who does radio is just a really good conversationalist and just really wants to like know, you know, like dive into a subject with each other. And people, you know, people want to listen to that. They do. I mean, I grew up on NPR and, and, and in Washington, D.C., we had our PBS television station as well. So mm-hmm. like, I grew up around all that stuff. So the, you know, my parents are very liberal. So, of course, we supported those kinds of things. So, yes. Basically, the, the idea of the podcast, the big idea is, is that if I can talk to, let's say, 100 people, I can choose, I can pick like one bit of knowledge out of one person, one bit of knowledge out of another person, one bit of knowledge from another person, and somehow as a listener put it together as these are little things that I got from a lot of different people that if I put them together, they create a great philosophy or or avenue forward for me in my creative career. Mm -hmm. It's my way of sort of trying to teach by asking. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I guess I would say that if there's anything that I can contribute to where the arts, like what the landscape of the arts looks like right now, this is something that I'm figuring out too, because again, like I'm pretty divorced from the academic world 
and I'm trying to figure out where where there's space to be able to kind of look at the discipline, to poke a little bit of fun at the discipline and also explain it, which is something that's really, it's a really delicate kind of tricky place to be because, I mean, there are plenty of professors who don't really want art history to be something that can be made as like quote unquote accessible as I try to do, not because they don't think it should be accessible, but because they just don't want it, you know, dumbed down. Like they, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of footnotes that could come from any one thing I say. Well, it's a huge issue. The idea of the dumbing down of the arts. Like I had somebody on a podcast previously that said they went to a museum in London, I believe. And when they went, they said that the like placards and the, and the Mm -hmm. text that was on the wall for the exhibition basically was written for an elementary school person. Like it, it, it was completely dumbed down for the masses. And it was to them, it was actually quite insulting to have it, dumbed down that much yeah well and and there are a lot of different aspects to that you've got you've got the fact that it's art which people are pretty adamant that art is whatever they say it is both artist and visitor alike which makes it very hard as an art historian to kind of get any real purchase on what you know quote unquote what the art quote unquote means And that's something that actually, when I was in school, didn't seem to be such a mystery. It was like really clear. You had textbooks, you had art historians who had already taken, you know, this giant mess and, you know, taken all these like asparagus stalks and wrapped the rubber band around it and said, you know, and handed it to you and said, this is the canon and this is what art history is. And I didn't question that. As academia tries to encourage us all to not question that. But like you have to start somewhere, right? I mean, you have to believe that there is some foundational, correct? Yeah. you know, truth with a capital T that, that says that this is an objective way of looking at a historical moment and kind of packaging it and teaching it so that then you can further teach it to other people. Like, I don't think that, I don't have a problem with that as the starting point, but what happens there, though, is that because art is so open to interpretation, again, kind of ostensibly, you know, you have this thing that has its objective history. You recognize that people are going to take from these objects what they will and kind of what affects them. And then, especially lately, you have people really questioning that objective history. So it's like that third leg of the stool that is making it really hard to say that any object is this or that thing when you realize that all of historical context is under the microscope right now, mostly rightfully, but that also makes it very hard to teach. Yeah. Well, most of art history is is just like any other history, which is, you know, written by the victors, which at this this point is still... Uh, you know, white European men kind of thing, which yeah. is ridiculous. I mean, there's always been non-white, non-European men that have been making amazing stuff throughout the world. Non-men, even. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I won't go as far as allowing animals, the like the, the elephant that paints and the monkey that paints. I'm not going with those as art. Well, I, I meant women, but okay. we'll, we'll just put that aside. Okay, great. I had a uh, really interesting example of this, actually, where uh, I, I did an episode on Gauguin because at the MFA, one of their real, like one of the crown jewels in their collection is this huge, huge Gauguin painting that was really meant to be his magnum opus. I mean, it was the, it's the kind of painting that like he finished and then he died. Like it was like, he just had to get this out and then, and he, it's always been given its own wall. You know, it's just a rock star and it's Gauguin, you know, like he's a tough guy to talk about. And on the one hand, do you single out him as like a particular asshole from all of the other, you know, modernist, male painters like they all kind of sucked however he has the most attached to him that is like really bad for for a a kind of a progressive woke world that we're living in right now okay wait help me out i'm i'm yeah what exact define woke for me i've never really understood what that exactly means oh okay i don't want to get myself in trouble here then you don't have to it's fine i'll look it up i mean I think it has a lot of value just to the people who feel like it applies to them, but then it's also taken on a bit of a pejorative slant. Just, you know, people who have like woken up to what, like that me who was in college, who never questioned the the history that I was being taught, really, you know, it's like waking up to that and realizing that there are many other different voices that you know, in order to have one be heard, you're not hearing a lot of others. Okay, so to be woke is to not be woken up, to, to not be enlightened in some way. Is to No, be, it is. Okay, so to be woke is, is to be enlightened. Yeah. To have woken up. Okay, I got yes, it. Yes, okay, exactly. Very helpful. Exactly. Thank the you woke. very much. Okay. Yeah, bring, bring it on. Let's, let's talk sexism in the arts. Let's talk racism. Well, Go ahead. so I'll finish this anecdote because this, this kind of embodies it all. So, yeah, Gauguin was was a deplorable person. In many and ways. If you ask me, like, not my favorite painter, but I do think that it's worthwhile for people to understand why his work is has been so famous and what makes it, like, where is the value in it? And especially in this really huge painting that the MFA owns that people know they should be kind of impressed by. And so I I did this episode and I didn't sidestep his personal stuff, but I did also put more emphasis on the painting itself with a kind of, you know what, like judge for yourself kind of attitude. And I got a Facebook message from somebody who, and this was like, never check Facebook right before you go to bed. No, it's a bad idea. <laughs> and, so it was like the last thing I did before I put my phone down on my nightstand. And it said, your episode on Gauguin was really, I don't even remember what the word was, but, you know, just, just like shame on you, you know, like, why are you even spending any, like, why are you wasting any breath on this child rapist? Like, don't you know what he did? And, you know, basically he should be, you know, canceled. And... I felt terrible and I, you know, put the phone away. And the next morning I woke up to another message that said, 
okay, well, I just finished the episode and you do address that stuff, but still, you know, he sucks. And I was like, <laughs> like that, I was taught a lot in that moment. One is, you know, finish an episode before you start ranting at the creator. Yes. But I wrote back to this person and I wrote a much longer a much longer note than this person deserved, if you ask me. But like, it was like, you know, you really got me thinking about what the role of an art historian is in these kinds of situations. Because there is an argument that says that this painting should be taken down and instead maybe put up some work by Tahitian artists who, you know, never got an opportunity to tell, you know, their side of the story. You can make the argument that you don't, I mean, you know, whitewash is a weird word, but it's like, you don't let historical precedent of the moment dictate how we look at past work. And this, you know, Gauguin has his place in the canon, even if he is really problematic. And we should talk about that too. But you don't, you know, you don't just kind of censor and I said, it was like, I was, I was working this out as I was typing this message to this like rando who I never heard back from. But I was like, as an art historian, I was taught a certain way. Is there an objectivity that I should be continuing to teach? Or am I the problem? Because I'm just rehashing the same stories that I was taught and teaching it as if it's objective and then saying, you go make your own decisions. Like maybe I should be the one changing the way it's taught. And I was really struggling with that for a while. And I, I still do. It's a worthwhile struggle. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's the art world right now. The whole museum world is struggling with that right now. How do you teach a discipline that, that since it began, you know, in the mid 19th century, 18th century, sorry. How do you, like, do you teach it as if there is something foundational and then you go from there? Or do we have to question the entire foundation? Um, and do museums have to look at their collections and everything that they were told was valuable and that's why you buy it or that's why you allow it to be, you know, bequeathed to you? I don't know what the answer is. Like everyone is struggling with that right now. Well, there's also the question of basically like, do you judge an artist by their, um, we'll call it their private life mm -hmm. in their work. So like, yeah. do, does one have anything to do with the other and should it have anything to do with the other? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of artists who I separate from their art and then there are plenty of artists who I don't. And it's really tough. But there are also plenty of artists that live perfectly normal lives and they have no need to be separated from anything. So, like, they're perfectly acceptable. So, it's just, it, to a certain extent, it's sort of those outliers that are sort of extreme in one cave, in one direction or another that sort of create this dialogue of, like, should all artists be judged by their private lives in their art? Or can the art just stand by itself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, you know, the rules of society change, too. And so there are a lot of artists who might not have been particularly egregious, but just who grew up in a time where XYZ was okay. 
And I think some people take it upon themselves to dig up every piece of that and say, this is why we can't appreciate this artist. And that's when I start to want to jump off the train. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little fearful of how my legacy will be after I die, what people will dig up about me that could be very bad for my career or my estate of my (laughs) career. (laughs) You're not the only one. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, now that I've put the fear of God in you. I know. I'm sort of like now like, oh, fuck, what are they going to dig up about me? Like, cause, I mean, because, well, because these days, of course, there's also the, the fact that like social media exists and emails, like, these things will always be available going forward unless there's some great atomic sort of uh, <clears throat> leveler that destroys all technology. Whereas, you know, the, some of the artists from the past, like they, they could sort of hide things. Like there was ways mm-hmm. to hide bad lifestyle choices or whatever they did my god you could do that 10 years ago you could hide that i know but now you can't or if well that's not true you could but it would take a lot of work to hide it like you'd have to really really hide it and i mean i've been very open on the podcast that i used to do a lot of drugs i used to party i used to do all kinds of crazy stuff but that was in my youth and luckily it was before social media so there is no actual physical proof of it as far as i know Except for the things that I possess, which nobody else can possess. So there you go. Except for the words you've just spoken into a microphone. Oh, it's fine. I've said it numerous times. It's no big deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm an open book about my life. I don't. I. I have no shame about anything uh-huh. I've done. Um, but I could see where people could easily judge me for some of the things that I've done, and then sort of associate that to my art. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, to to kind of to put it back in a larger framework. I think that distinguishing between what makes someone good and what makes someone great is a really interesting question when it comes to the arts. You know, you can have, you can have incredible greatness and be a real prick. And it doesn't necessarily take away from the greatness of your contribution to the canon. But I think that when you're in the position of who decides what greatness is that's a really who are those people tell me who who decides the greatness it's curators it's influencers curators collectors and all these kinds of people Um, yeah and now educators you know like that's actually that's not something that i take lightly that if there are a real chunk of people and it's it's more every day like which is super exciting who listen to my show then it puts me in a position to tell people what actually makes something great or not, like what makes art matter. And that is no small responsibility. And that's why it's something that I think about a lot. Like, how do you tell these stories in a way that takes into account the shifting landscape about how we should be teaching these artists and how, you, how we should be questioning the canon? Well, actually, you're in some ways to the mass public because you're making art more accessible. You are more or less sort of creating a new can- new version of the canon by choosing individual pieces that you have available to you and saying, these are worth discussing. You're now elevating these, we'll call it like lesser known possibly pieces by a particular artist to a higher point in the, their, their oeuvre. <laughs> yeah, well... 
It's actually surprisingly easier to talk about artists who are less famous than the ones who are really famous. I just came off of this project where I was the podcasting residence at the MFA at Boston. And I wanted to have a real diversity of, of artists in terms of their media and in terms of their like uh, their own ethnicities, but then also in terms of their levels of fame. And so I have Frida Kahlo and Georgia O'Keeffe, but also artists that people are less familiar with, Carmen Herrera and Patty Chang. And it's much easier to write about artists that you can actually contribute a certain amount of, not even scholarship, but just kind of criticism and say like, okay, you've never heard of Patty Chang, probably. Sorry, Patty Chang. But if that's the case, then here's how her work hit me. And I think that me telling that story anecdotally might help you understand that you can't do that with George O'Keefe. I mean, you can't, no. you can't put a toe out of line with George O'Keefe and with Frida Kahlo because these are people who, who the general public obsess over. But more so Frida and Kahlo. So, yeah. And they're looking, you know, not, they're not just looking for my interpretation of it. They're looking to validate their own. And so you just, you can't mess that up. And I, I mean, I, I put out that episode on Frida Kahlo originally last July, right before my son was born, actually. I, I worked on it for a long, long time. And then I re-released it again with this series. And each time I was kind of holding my nose, like I was just like hitting publish. And it's like, I got to get that Frida Kahlo out there, but I really want to go back to an artist with less pressure. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I, 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 I yeah. It, it well, but it's also a little bit more fun for you to as a creator of this of a a resource for knowledge and, and art history to be able to sort of almost um, offer the public something brand new, something they've never heard of, some artist they've never looked into before, and, and it's a little bit more exciting than to just rehash the history that's already even has a canon. Yeah. No, it's it's fun for me as, you know, I, I like the personal challenge of taking on artists that I'd never heard of and really diving into them. And But that said, it's also fun to see how can I take Frida Kahlo, Giorgio O'Keefe, Picasso, you know, take another angle that is more interesting to me and maybe a way that they haven't necessarily been approached before. It's more fun for me to, to take these artists who are really famous and find a new angle that is, you know, not necessarily a way that I've ever looked at them before and maybe is a way that other people haven't looked at them before. Right, which is the way you start the podcast by basically interviewing, you know, let's say the average audience member just sort of looking at it and trying to describe it to you. And then that's sort of an interesting jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so scared. Everyone is scared to talk about art. Everyone's terrified that they're going to get it wrong. Well, everybody does get it wrong. That's not true. We all get, That's not What do you mean by that? We all get it wrong. Like, I mean, if you actually went like, because I have curators that come to my studio and like, I'll sit there and I'll explain what I, what I thought I was making. And they're like, oh, I see this other thing completely. Like it, it, it's. But are they wrong for seeing that? Uh, that's what I think is okay. actually a really okay, important. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I this. made a mistake. I shouldn't say the word wrong. 
because nothing in the arts is wrong except but but interpretations could be easily unique like different people will certainly see their own experiences in a works like you you said any two people in front of a piece of art and they're never going to interpret it the same way yeah i mean and i i just i feel like the way that like don't get me wrong i'm an art historian i think that there are very specific parts of an artwork that are factual and objective and what that the artist's intention the problem is the artist doesn't always know what they're doing absolutely like the artist doesn't always see the forest for the trees like they don't or the trees for the forest like they don't necessarily see themselves as existing in a, a specific historical moment or context or movement and so in that way you know nobody has all the information However, you know, if you're going to be an art historian and you're going to teach us, you know, specific information, you want to believe that that exists. And you don't just want to say that anybody can walk up to a painting and say, well, this is what I see in it. And this is how it makes me feel. So therefore, look at me, mom, I'm an art historian. You know, that's insulting. However, however, yes, I do think that to use words like wrong. I'm so going to edit that out. You know, that is. No, keep it in because I think that that's, that really hits the nail on the head for why arts education matters and why it's really important for people to be sensitive to the fact that, that like the art world is really intimidating and the museum world is intimidating. You know, it's, it's not that dissimilar from music, even though people are more comfortable with popular music than they are with like, popular art because fine arts aren't like popular in the same way but with music you have this thing this objective thing that can be studied that has a historical background you have the practitioner who has to learn how to manipulate the instrument and then you have the way it makes people feel and just because somebody writes a song and they're talking about their own personal experience i'm going to listen to it during an a period of my own life and it's going to like hook into that space and that's what's going to make that song meaningful to me and we need to treat fine art the same way we need to allow it to have an objective history you know that we question of course and and allow the practitioners to know what they're doing and say that there is a way to learn how to do something to the best of of one's ability and then also allow for the audience interpretation to to be why it matters to them and not just because they understand the historical context. And I think that a good art historian recognizes that there's both. Well, see, what that starts to bring up for me is like I'm a practicing artist myself as well as a teacher. And so I teach part of this and I also have to participate in part of this, which is not only do I have to these days, so let's stress on that. So in contemporary art market and art world, these days as an artist, I have to produce my work and I have to also write a written statement explaining my work. So whether that's for a Mm -hmm. grant or a residency or for an exhibition, whatever, you have to create an artist statement. Yeah. How, as an art historian, how important are those to you? 
Oh, I, I mean, artist statements are bullshit. I, I feel terrible for artists having to write their own statements because it's the same, you know, that line in, in, uh, in that, that movie playing by heart, that talking about love is like dancing about architecture. Like it's, you can't expect artists to, you know, if, if every artist was able to articulate their art, they'd be writers. <laughs> they wouldn't be artists. When I was in un- undergrad, actually, I, the first grant I ever applied for, they said, write one page about your artwork. And so I wrote, I took a piece of paper and I wrote in very large font, if I wanted to write about artwork, I would have been a writer. Yeah. And that's what well, I sent exactly. in. Exactly. And they exactly. I, obviously I did not receive that grant, but... <laughs> I mean, that's always been my position, and I really don't appreciate how in modern society it has become almost a necessity for visual artists in particular to have to also be able to eloquently uh, express their ideas of their visual arts in text. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that what arts writers are there for then? You know, there should be this detente between art historians and critics and artists so that there's a generosity there that says, okay, why don't you, you know, I'm going to make this art. You figure out a way to articulate it and that the two of us together are going to put this out into the world in a way that people can really feel like they're understanding. I'm all for it. Um, I love the idea yeah. of a a writer who is like-minded, let's say, or, or empathetic to the artist's idea to be able to, we can call it assist, we can say collaborate with the artist to yeah. create some text to accompany the work, I think is a fabulous idea. However, I it's difficult to, for a visual artist to find a good quality writer that can actually, you know, be copacetic to the idea and be sort of empathetic to the work and write eloquently about it. Yeah. And it's, it's hugely hard for arts writers to get off their high horses and, and get down into the, into the muck with the artists, you know, they don't want to stain their shoes, but, (laughs) but I think that there's like, that does seem to be at the heart of what can you know, it should be a collaboration. It ends up being this weird, not a competition, but but just going in two different directions. You know, my mom is an artist, and I'm an art historian, and we've we've like we've like hit it a couple times. Well, but it is kind because... of a competition because like there is this sort of tiered level of like if you're a certain level of an artist, you can get a certain level of a writer to help to write for you, and so the, and then having that collaboration with that writer then sometimes can even elevate your status as an artist because you've yeah. got such a great writer that's written for you. So like there is a little bit of competition to get the good writers to help you because the writer could help your career in some way. Yeah. That's why I tend to focus on artists who are dead. <laughs> I find that a little easier. I actually, I, I wouldn't say I know all that much about the contemporary art world. Like it's, it's just, I, I still, lean pretty heavily on the canon that I, you know, was kind of born from um, to at least be my starting point. Well, see, the the future canon of the, the contemporary world is going to be all these artist statements that they wrote for grants and residencies and all this. This is going to be the paperwork that you're going to research in the future. Yeah, but, 
you know, those manifestos that came out of the futurists and the fauvists and, you know, they're, they're just as bullshitty when you really get into them, but now they're treated as pristine documents. I, I mean, everyone's just art students trying bullshit. to, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> they're all just, I'm t- I totally agree. It's complete bullshit, but I mean, it's unfortunately it's become a necessity in the contemporary times that we all have to do this. I mean, like you had mentioned earlier with academia, like the publisher parish kind of stuff, like you just, mm-hmm. you have, there are certain things that the industries have built that become the thing that the people who choose to participate in that industry end up having to do whether we like it or not. Yeah. Like this has been an, a really interesting conversation. It's, you know, every time you talk about this kind of stuff, you're able to calcify your thoughts about it a little bit more. And I appreciate any opportunity to talk with people myself about the state of the art world and what that can teach me um, and hopefully make me a better teacher. Actually, on a side note, you mentioned that your mother's a painter and all this. Like, So that I, one question I neglected to ask you was, how did you get an interest in the arts and the creativity, which you've kind of already answered, but elaborate. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, again, I mean, I was born into it because of my mom being a fine artist, but I, uh, I was an artist myself throughout, like my whole life. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's, it's too dismissive to say that that because I stopped around college, that it wasn't how I defined myself all I, through, you know, my most informative years. Like I was always the person who was doodling all over everything, who was really experimenting with, you know, how, how to be a good draftsman. I mean, I would just draw everything incessantly. All my homework was always covered with drawings and And when I got to the university level, I went to the the University of Toronto and their fine arts program, at least at the time, was pretty much uh, first come, first serve. And I just didn't sign up for the entry level visual arts classes early enough. And it meant that I just couldn't really get in because there were always more people who wanted to, to do it than they could than they could take. And they didn't really have a portfolio review. Like it, you just kind of got in if you just clicked fast enough. And so I took art history instead. And I ended up realizing that I was actually much more suited to, at the time, you know, the academic, like intellectual side of art than I was at making my own. I just didn't feel like I was particularly creative. I just really enjoyed rendering things beautifully and learning how to draw but i i didn't really have that much to say and i think by the time you get into the university level even though you still need to hone your fundamentals you should feel like you have something to say and i just didn't and so what i had to say was actually much more intellectual than than manual so that took me, I mean, I really came into my own the, my last couple of years of college. I really discovered my passion for art history and my passion for writing. And I took a year off uh, and moved to Germany and learned some German and then started grad school and finished my master's. And then the economy collapsed in 2008, which, you know, at the time everyone was like, oh yeah, that, but now... It's like cute. Well, in comparison that recession to what's was, about was to the adorable in the future, one. Yes. Yeah. 
So in that time in between, I actually had, it's, it's, I mean, I think I'm going to look back on this and, and be incredibly grateful that, that the time in between 2008 and 2020, I was able to compromise some stuff professionally, but also build up a really good foundation that hopefully will, will carry us through this next little while where, you know, people want more of a connection to a lot of institutions that they can't go to right now. And in that way, the Lonely Palette has seen some more success than I've uh, I expected it to. I mean, it's been a really good couple of weeks. I was going to say, I imagine that a lot of universities and such are using your res- as a your podcast as a resource uh, for online courses and things like this at this point. Oh, I don't know. I maybe. I hope so. Every now and then, I look at my analytics and I I do see some universities. I'm I'm seeing more actually publications. I just got a write up in the New York Times and mm, and in New York Magazine. Oh. And thank you. It seems like there's a whole new, you know, this happened very quickly. It's only been a couple of weeks, but it's like there's a whole new world now of how to access the arts from home. And I've been really fortunate to be on people's radars as as that's been happening. So we'll see what happens. The best of luck in the future. I hope you continue Thank on you. and it's, it ends up, was it Spoken Hub ends up growing? Hub and Spoke. Hub and Spoke. Darn it. Okay, I'll do it cleanly. And I hope that Hub and Spoke becoming, becomes the next uh, PRX. Oh, thank you. We, you know, we, we've already got our website and our pins, so we're well on our way. Marvelous. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's really good talking to you. Thank you.